Warning, this episode contains brain food that will lead to improved emotional and social intelligence. Give us one hour and we'll help you change the way you think about happiness. Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress-Kamen is fresh, optimistic, and purpose-driven media that promotes well-being from the inside out. Each week, Lisa spotlights diverse trendsetters and change agents who are the greatest contemporary thinkers and doers, devoting their lives to creating a better world in which to live. Your host, Lisa Cypress-Kamen, is a widely recognized applied positive psychology expert, author, documentary filmmaker, and lecturer specializing in optimal lifestyle management. Let's get to it. Here's Lisa. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, wherever you are. Thanks for joining me on today's show, where you will learn how to grow wiser by nourishing conscious hearts and minds. My first guest is Dr. Dilip Jeste, and this conversation originally aired in September of 2021. He is the author of Wiser, The Scientific Roots of Wisdom, Compassion, and What Makes Us Good. And I wanted to give a little background about the good Dr. Jeste. He is a Senior Associate Dean for Healthy Aging and Senior Care, Professor of Psychiatry and Neurosciences, and Director of the Center for Healthy Aging at UC San Diego. He is past president of the American Psychiatric Association. He is a neuropsychiatrist specializing in geriatric issues. Jeste has spent more than 20 years studying aspects of healthy aging and the neurobiological roots of wisdom. And if there were ever a time when wisdom in the house, it's right now. <laughs> Welcome. Thanks for joining us on the show. Thank you so much, Lisa. It's a pleasure and an honor to be on your show. Well, I feel the same way. And I feel like there is a call to wisdom, a global call to wisdom right now. We need to activate and, and support more wisdom for ourselves and for those around us in order to recover from a year that's Pretty unusual. That's exactly right. And I would say it is not only the last year of COVID, but for the past about 20 years or so, the loneliness has doubled. The number of suicides have gone up by something like 33% in the U.S. Deaths from opioid use have increased six-folds in the last 20 years. And... Yeah. The world is becoming more polarized, stressed out, and unhappy. So, and COVID-19 made it much worse. So you're absolutely right. But Dr. Jeste, you said something really interesting. In our conversation prior to getting started with the interview, you were mentioning how older people have fared better in the last year. And you attribute it, I'm not going to spill the beans, but tell, tell the audience why, because it makes perfect sense. So older people, we all know, are at a higher risk of physical complications from COVID. They were more likely to be admitted to ICU, more likely to require ventilation and more likely to die. And yet, psychologically, older people have handled the pandemic better than younger ones. A number of studies from across the world show that. I think it comes from both resilience and wisdom that come with age. Many of the older people have said that, you know, they have been through much worse and they know that they will get over this too. You know, it's interesting that you, you mentioned this because I care for a 95-year-old elder along with my partner, and she said at the beginning of the pandemic, she said, you know, we escaped from Austria, you know, during Nazi times, and we got through that. This is nothing. And that conversation just rang, you know, true in my ears as you were describing that. So her perspective at 95 the trials and tribulations that she has lived through, COVID pales in comparison to running for your life. That's exactly right. I mean, many older people are role models for wisdom and resilience. And there's a lot to learn from them. 
how they handled it in spite of higher physical risk. That makes it even more impressive. Also, they don't have access to technology or they're not as comfortable using technology as the younger people are. So in spite of those disadvantages, they're handling it better. So it's really inspirational. We have another friend, a very dear friend of our aunt, who is also in her 90s. And one of her hobbies is writing scathing letters to government officials. (laughs) And she did it on an old-fashioned Olivetti typewriter that broke at the beginning of the pandemic. So I said to her, I'm going to find you a new one on eBay. And I found her this typewriter and I found her the replacement, old replacement ribbons that had been unused. And I brought it over to her house for a gift. And she felt like her, she had been reborn, right? That she had regained her voice that was silenced because she couldn't, she couldn't express herself because she couldn't type these letters. And I I, I think that this is the wisdom that you're talking about. And how do we teach it or how do we learn to be more wise? So wisdom is a personality trait, but it has different components. One component, and probably the most important one, is empathy and compassion. Another is self-reflection, ability to look inwards, understand yourself, and improve your behavior. And one more is emotional regulation, which uh-huh. refers to control over our emotions. And these are the critical components of wisdom that all can be improved. And starting with childhood. And in a way, good parents do that. We teach a toddler who is throwing a tantrum when he doesn't get something, is to tell him that, no, every time you can't get something, you can't throw a tantrum. You have to control your emotions. We also tell him to share the toys with other siblings, neighborhood kids and others. So we teach empathy and compassion. When he doesn't do well in math and he blames it on the teacher, you say, no, it's not the teacher. Maybe you didn't study hard because you were involved in sports the day before the exam. So we are teaching self-reflection. So we, in a way, implicitly do that. But what is needed is to do that explicitly on a regular basis at all levels. And we live in a society today that has used antibacterial right wipes you know we're trying to disinfect ourselves from germs to have a, a, a an air quote healthier life and this is prior to the pandemic right the popularity of these little pocket um disinfectants right. and in a sense it's a metaphor to what we have done to try and eliminate conflict or problems in our own lives and in the lives of our children to make it cleaner, less stressful. And it's really done a disservice to us. That is true. That is true. That we are doing things which are helpful from one angle, but they can also hurt from another angle. And social relationships are very important. And we need to keep them in some way or another. Uh, So, without taking the usual precaution that we all need to take to control the pandemic. But still, we need social connection. We need empathy and compassion. We need to talk to other people. We need to have social relationships. Then only we will do better. And we need conflict, right? We need a certain level of conflict because it's what teaches us how to handle life when life isn't always easy, right? It makes, in my view, it makes us better people. Absolutely. I mean, one of the components of wisdom is acceptance of diverse perspectives. So I may have certain values and I may hold on to them strongly, but I can understand why others may have different value systems. That doesn't mean that either of us is evil or dumb. That we, there are rational basis, there is rational basis for each perspective, and we need to understand that. That doesn't mean we need to agree with them, but compromises will emerge only when we work with one another, when we listen to one another, try to understand the behavior. So you're right that we need conflict because that makes us better educated and wiser. 
And we need to, I think we need to also check our, our judgment. Not only do we need to self-regulate in terms of um, our emotions, I think we need to learn to regulate judgment. Because when we suspend judgment, we're able to activate that empathy and compassion that you talk about. Exactly. I think wisdom, in a way, is a balance. It is balance between decisiveness and acceptance of diverse perspectives. It is balance between cognition and emotion. It is balance between being selfish and uh, unselfish. I want to ask you, is it possible to accelerate the accumulation of wisdom? In other words, can we put ourselves on a boot camp program to become more wise? I really think so. Usually we say that wisdom comes with aging because experience comes with aging, and that is true. However, we do not need to wait till uh, we get older before acquiring wisdom. We see some young people who are very wise too. So what is needed is making an active, conscious effort, sustained effort on multiple levels to improve empathy and compassion, self-reflection, emotional regulation, acceptance of diverse perspectives, and so on. I think we definitely can do that. And there are studies, actually, including some randomized control trials that have shown that you can increase emotional regulation or empathy and compassion. So there is actually evidence to support that we can increase these components. And how, if if you were to give two or three tips to our listeners of how they might increase their empathy glands, (laughs) you know, or broaden their compassion uh, capacities, what are ways that we can do that? Sure. So one way is uh, keeping a gratitude diary or a journal. So before going to bed, write a couple of things that you feel grateful for or that you feel happy that you did to help others. If you do that regularly, you start waking up in the morning thinking about what am I going to write tonight? And so your behavior changes. So it becomes a second habit. Another thing one can do is role play. If we spend 24 hours in a wheelchair or 24 hours blindfolded, we will realize what a person in a wheelchair feels like, what a blind person feels like, and we'll become more empathic and compassionate to that person. Mm, I like this role-playing. I never thought of it uh, in this context before. The gratitude journal is you know, a tried-and-true positive psychology intervention. That, that we know, but this role-playing, you know, actually putting yourself, physically putting yourself in someone else's shoes to experience life through their lens. I I think that's fantastic. Because in a way, empathy is understanding and sharing somebody's emotions. So putting yourself in the shoes of the other person, so we can literally do that. And when we do that, that will improve our empathy towards that person. We are going to need to take a break. And when we come back, we are going to continue the conversation with Dr. Dilip Jeste. We're talking about his latest book, Wiser, The Scientific Roots of Wisdom, Compassion, and What Makes Us Good. To connect with Dr. Jeste, you can do so. That's UCSD Center for Healthy Aging. Let's take that quick break and we'll return to the conversation with Dr. Dilip Jeste. To learn more about cultivating sustainable well-being at home and the office, visit HarvestingHappiness.com and explore Lisa's experiential on-site brain fitness workshops, corporate programming, and speaking engagement services. And we're back exploring how to grow wiser by nourishing conscious hearts and minds. Let's get back to the conversation with Dr. Dilip Jeste that originally aired in September of 2021. Doctor, I want to also turn the conversation towards positive psychiatry, because as somebody who's worked in positive psychology for many years, I am delighted to learn that you and, and some of your colleagues are turning your attention to positive psychiatry? Yes. 
in 2012, I was elected president of the American Psychiatric Association. And I was thinking about what theme I would have for my presidency. Until then, during my research, I found that actually older people are happier. People get happier, I think. So I started doing research on successful aging. But then I realized it happens at all ages. There are things like resilience, optimism, compassion, wisdom. They are integral parts of health. And Lisa, your work on positive psychology really has been outstanding. Um, and I found that that was not happening in the field of psychiatry or medicine. There were very few articles on resilience and these other positive traits in psychiatric literature. So I made positive psychiatry the theme for my presidency. At that time, actually, I Googled the term positive psychiatry. I didn't find a single citation. For <laughs> positive psychology, there were thousands, of course, uh, of citations. And so I made that a focus, and I defined positive psychiatry as part of psychiatry that focuses on improving well-being and happiness through promotion of positive psychological traits. Yeah. We published the first book on positive psychiatry and started doing research. And I'm really happy to say that that moment has, is beginning to catch up. We now have U.S. as well as international sections on positive psychiatry in large organizations. So when we say positive psychiatry, are you talking about writing prescriptions for medication or treating, yeah. treating the, the whole person? and their whole body, mind, and spiritual lives for, for optimal living? So when you look at the definition of psychiatry in the dictionary, it defines psychiatry as a branch of medicine that studies and treats mental illnesses. And I said that is too narrow a definition. Of course, we have to treat people with mental illnesses. But mental health is very important. Yeah. 20% people have mental illnesses, 100% people have mental health. So what do we do? What can we do to improve that? And I said that things like resilience, optimism, wisdom, they come within the purview of mental health, psychiatry, just like it has been in psychology. So we have been developing interventions to promote these positive psychological traits and Clearly, there is evidence that they work. And so we really need to, in the field of psychiatry, expand our vision to go beyond mental illnesses and beyond symptoms being treated with medication to improving the well-being of the patient as well as the population at large. I love what you just said about 20% of the population having mental illness, but 100% of the population having mental health. And mental health being a right of all people. We, we're all entitled to have good mental health. And how do we support that? I, I think that is so important and, and under-discussed. That, that's exactly right. In a way, what is the purpose of mental health or even actually physical health care, well-being? Yeah. We want people to be happy. That is the ultimate goal of life. That's the ultimate goal of medicine and any other care services. So that's where mental health becomes so critical. Whether the person has cancer, heart disease, whatever, everybody wants to be happy, and that's our job to be able to do that. And when we give people the means to live a satisfying life, the tools, you know, whether it's through pharmacological intervention, um, medical intervention, um, psychological intervention, or lifestyle intervention, we're giving people all of these tools and empowering them to make choices for them to have a happy life. This is what I'm hearing you say. That's exactly right. And the importance of these goes beyond just mental health. It has implications for physical health. It has implications for longevity. Studies have shown that things like social engagement, resilience, compassion, they are associated with not only better physical and mental health, but greater longevity. Uh, they ha the social determinants of health are 
even more important. The studies have shown than things like smoking, alcohol use, and so on. I'm thinking of the the U-curve study that was done, oh my gosh, it must be, I don't know, 10 years ago, maybe longer, of uh, tracking the happiness level of of the average human being, you know, coming into the world as fairly happy, the average baby. And then the more, the older this person becomes, or we become, our happiness levels drop. They they bottom out um, when we're in the thick and highlight of our professional careers, when we're busy raising kids. And then there's uh, an up curve um, in our older years, because maybe we don't care so much about what others others think. We're more secure in our own skin. Do you remember that study? Yes, I do. So they called it U, inverted U-shaped curve of happiness. Yes, yes. Uh, what we find, though, is some, somewhat different. What we find is that if you... So we have done studies of people from age 20 to 100 plus. What we find is that physical health of course, declines uh, as we get older, especially after 50 or 60. Mental health goes exactly in the opposite direction. It is worst at 20. At the age of 20, <laughs> when we started our adult study, a lot of stress, yeah. anxiety, peer pressure. Um, you think you have to make big decisions and you always feel you are not doing well. But then the good news, as we get older, we know how to handle stresses better. We become happier. And we find that people in the 80s and 90s are happier than people in the 20s and 30s. And that makes total sense, right? Because you you know you don't really care about social comparison any, any longer. You feel more at ease in your own skin, right? You know who you are. And I've had this conversation with our our elder aunt, and she was saying how she never really knew herself till she was about 40 or 50. And that was a turning point for her. Exactly. You know, if you ask a 20-year-old, she will say, I don't want to be 80 and in a wheelchair. But if you ask an 80-year-old in a wheelchair, she would say, he or she would say, I don't want to go back to my 20s. I'm so happy. <laughs> really enjoying. I'm so proud of what I've done. <laughs> well, and, and maybe that's another part of this wisdom is that acceptance of where we are. You know, when we don't try and fight the experience that we find ourselves in because everything is impermanent. So it's not that we just roll over and surrender, but it's accepting that all things are impermanent. Every bad situation will end. Every good situation will end. And, and life is going to be this up and down and series of uh, wins and disappointments. That's exactly right. I mean, my guide to wisdom is the serenity prayer. Yes. Give me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can, and wisdom to know the difference. And that's true at all ages, especially in older age. So at an older age, you can't do what you are doing physically at 20. But on the other hand, you have a lot of experience. You can do coaching. You can do mentoring. So older people are so important for the wisdom of younger generations. And this is the case for multi-generational or co-housing, you know, when we live with people of multi-generations under the same roof, that you have such a rich tapestry in the family unit, whether it's a a blood family or a a family of choice, right? You have so much to offer each other. That's exactly right. So I was brought up in a joint family in India, lots of people, including several older people. And that was incredibly helpful. And actually research has shown that when grandparents are involved in raising grandchildren, when those children grow up, they have fewer emotional or other psychological problems, fewer adjustment difficulties, and they do better than kids who didn't have grandparent involvement. Hmm, and that makes a lot of sense. I, I remember my grandparents were very active in my life when I was younger. And what I remember most about them, and we didn't even touch about, upon this quality that I'm going to mention which is patience. Exactly. Exactly. And, you know, there is also evolutionary basis for this. There is something called grandmother hypothesis of wisdom. It says that when grandparents are involved in raising grandchildren, the younger generations live longer, they are happier, 
and they are more fertile than the older generation. So it helps species survival. And this is really hardcore research published in major journals like Science and Nature. So older people, so, you know, people talk about increasing the number of old people as silver tsunami. I say it is not silver tsunami. It's a golden wave of older, wiser, happier people who will help the younger generation. Yeah. Well, this has been a fantastic conversation. We're out of time, but I want you to come back and hang out with me anytime. You and I can have virtual cup of tea every day because <laughs> this warm these conversations like this with you warm warm my heart. I really appreciate the work that you do. Um, your latest book, Wiser, The Scientific Roots of Wisdom, Compassion, and What Makes Us Good. To learn more about the work of my guest, Dr. Dilip Jeste, please go to wiserthebook.com. You can also find him over at the University of San Diego Center for Healthy Aging. Dr. Jeste, thank you so much for brightening my day. Thank you, Lisa. The same holds here. I have great respect for the work you do, and it is a pleasure talking to you. I look forward to coming back. Thank you. And here comes that pause. We'll be right back. Did you know that happiness is actually good for your health? Happy people live longer, are more productive, and make better partners, parents, and professionals. Connect with us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness, and follow Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen for a daily dose of inspiration. Continuing to learn how to grow wiser by nourishing conscious hearts and minds. My next guest is Lama Paul Dendroma, and this conversation originally aired in February of 2020. She is the author of Love on Every Breath, a licensed psychotherapist, spiritual teacher, and coach. She has studied Buddhism in the Himalayas with some of the most preeminent Tibetan masters of the 20th century. Following a traditional three-year retreat under his guidance, Kalu Rinpoche authorized her to become one of his first Western lamas. She subsequently founded the Sukha City Foundation, a Tibetan Buddhist teaching center in Fairfax, California. And she's here today, and I'm so eager to learn about her story and her work. Lama Paulden, thanks for joining us on the show. My pleasure. I would love to hear your story. I'm actually waiting with bated breath to hear your story and how you came to be a llama. Ah, okay. Well, I, I grew up in, in Marin County, Northern California, the Bay Area, quite a liberal place. And I was always very interested in spiritual things. My earliest memories of that go back to three years old. And then I was raised Episcopalian, very liberal, and then... When I got into my teens, I really started doing a lot more inquiry and studying Gandhi and all kinds of different religions and starting to learn meditation. And that went on in my 20s. I became really more serious about that, doing a lot of yoga every day, sitting zazen, studying mystical Christianity and Sufism and all of these kinds of things, pursuing a path towards spiritual unity, divine union, and really unfolding more uh, into the, I don't know what you'd say, like into awakened presence, pure being. And then about the age of 25, I began praying to meet my teacher. I figured I really needed a primary teacher. And a Sufi friend sort of dragged me off, convinced me after talking to me for hours to come with him to San Francisco across the bridge to meet a Tibetan Lama, hear him speak. And we got there. And as soon as I saw this Lama, who was about in his early 70s at the time, I just knew he was my teacher. So that was 42 years ago. And that has never really wavered. Uh, Definitely, he's my teacher. He's passed on now. But I had the incredible opportunity of studying with him, uh, mainly in the Himalayas for 12 years, off and on, and then doing the three retreat under his guidance. And I had longed to do retreat for many years. And then it turned out he was the 
main retreat master among the Tibetans in the 20th century. The first one to establish long retreats after they had to leave Tibet. And so those two things came together and I was able to do three-year retreat, which I did up on Salt Spring Island in British Columbia at a retreat center my teacher has up there. And that was extremely hard work, very challenging, but the most rewarding and fulfilling thing I've ever done with my time in this life. And afterwards, about a year later, my teacher uh, authorized me as a lama. I'd never really thought about teaching or wanted to, but then after that, people started asking me to teach. And then eventually, about 10 years later, I founded a Tibetan Buddhist center here in Marin County. So that's, that's my story. And part of the time I was studying in the Himalayas or Himalayas with him and other great Tibetan masters, I also had the good fortune of living in Bhutan for four years, which this was the late 70s, early 80s. It was so remote. There were almost no Westerners that had ever been there. But that was also an incredible experience. It was unbelievably relaxing there for me and very nourishing spiritually. Let me ask you how this worked with your sort of Western life as a licensed psychotherapist and as a coach. You have blended these two very different kinds of technology. Yes, actually... I became a therapist after three-year retreat. I went back to grad school a few years after three-year retreat and started then doing psychotherapy, spiritual coaching, counseling, etc. So it was really because growing up in Marin as a teenager in the late 60s, I made a real determination inside myself around age 15, 16, that the psyche the spirit and the body were all super important in the journey of transformation and the spiritual path. So I was always, I've always been committed to the joining and working with all three of those. So, you know, hence a lot of yoga, a lot of that kind of thing, plus spiritual work, plus in-depth psychological work, uh, both inside of myself and then you know, in grad school studying, of course, and then uh, in working with others. So it's really been very seamless joining those together. And I think when we work on all aspects of ourselves, then transformation happens much more quickly. You call the meditation that you teach in the book, as well as the book's name, Love on Every Breath. Describe the type of meditation and how you came up with the name. Okay, yeah. So this meditation I'm teaching in the book, which I'm calling Love on Every Breath, is a very extraordinary form of a practice called Tonglen in Tibetan, which has to do with taking in the suffering of the world, having it transform in the heart chakra, and then being sent out as healing energy and awakened love and wisdom. And so that's done on the breath in the practice. And besides the fact that this practice actually consciously, you can breathe in your own suffering of your own human self, have it transformed through a sense of awakened presence in the heart. And of course, the book goes into a lot of detail about how to do this. And then in that transformation, the suffering, the pain is transformed, uh, as I said, into healing energy, awakened energy, but it's also transformed into white light. And this light is, uh, you breathe that out. So it's actually the meditation is done on the in-breath and out-breath, hence the name. And you know, it's fine to do it not coordinated with the breath, but that's the traditional way of doing it. And a lot of us are taking in suffering all the time or feeling our own suffering or other people's suffering, and it just kind of gets stuck inside of us. And this practice is a very 
profound way to actually allow that to be transformed and liberated in our hearts and then manifest back out as um, an energy that is um, very helpful for ourselves and others. So for somebody who is unfamiliar with meditation, but very familiar with suffering, (laughs) how might you guide them to become aware of the breath and the skill set necessary to apply love to the breath? Good question. Yeah. Well, the book goes step by step. There's eight steps and then each one I explain, you know, in depth. So the first, which really relates to your question of becoming aware of the breath, the first is what I'm calling resting in open awareness. And that's where you know, again and again, we let go of thoughts and we just rest in our direct experience, what's happening right now in this moment. And obviously a lot of times thoughts come up about the past, thoughts come up about the future, and we're constantly kind of evaluating or judging the present moment. And so again and again, we let go of all that. We let go of evaluating, judging past and future thoughts and instead open really wholeheartedly to what's here, what we're experiencing right here in this moment, in our felt sensation, in in the, you know, awareness of what's inside and outside of us. And in that slowing down and really paying attention and focusing on the here and now, that's where we then become aware of our breath. And the breath is an amazingly powerful tool for awakening and for healing, for transformation. It's an amazing tool. For example, uh, in psychotherapy, if somebody's experiencing something painful, uh, really working on some old stuck, you know, trauma or pain or um, confusion, just simply breathing into that with awareness is very transformative and liberating. And so the breath in uh, a lot of meditation practices and in yogic practices is really valuable for uh, working with the process of liberation. What's interesting is the breath is a a natural anti-anxietal if we use it. Exactly, (laughs) exactly. You know, that's what I found too. Like if I feel a little bit anxious, I really bring my breath down to my abdomen and consciously breathe. And it's very grounding and it it does, it helps relieve anxiety, the breath and then working with the breath consciously is really amazing. We're going to take a break. And when we come back, we'll continue the conversation with Lama Paldendroma to learn more about her work. Please visit www.lamapaldendroma.com. Org. On Twitter, you can find her at Lama Paulden, and on Facebook, that page is Lama Paulden Drama. The book we're speaking of today and the practice that we are talking about is Love on Every Breath. We're going to take a quick break, and then we'll return to the conversation with Lama Paulden Drama. Who says money can't buy happiness? Whether you are a skeptic or seeker, check out Lisa's new book, Are We Happy Yet? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life. A boot camp manual for greater emotional fitness is available at Barnes & Noble, Amazon, IndieBound, and HarvestingHappiness.com. Here's a truth bomb. Emotions are contagious, and happiness is a universally desired state. But we tend to forget that we all have the freedom to be happy or the liberty to be miserable each day, regardless of external circumstances. Explore the journey of human happiness, how to find it and keep it, with Lisa's documentary film, H-Factor. Where is your heart? Visit HarvestingHappiness.com to learn more. Talking with Lama Paulden Droma. We're talking about growing wiser by nourishing conscious hearts and minds. And this conversation was originally aired in February of 2020. So, Lama Paulden, let's go back to the breath and the challenge of the breath 
in being alive. Because many of us, when we are impacted by stress or anxiety or life's events, we hold the breath, the life force that is so necessary for our well-being. We do the opposite. Yes. Yeah. I think it's an unconscious habit pattern of trying of we think if we hold our breath, we won't have to feel, you know, but it's a very unconscious process. And in meditation practice, we can begin to be conscious of our breath and work with it consciously, skillfully. We can learn to, you know, even out the breath, to stay present with the breath. And the breath is an amazing tool to help bring the mind-body together into harmony. And the use of breath, you know, proper breath work or good breath work will also help reduce cortisol in the body. Mm, I didn't realize that. Interesting. Right. So you're being able to manage adrenaline. You know, I, mm-hmm. I don't know. I'm going to speak for myself and have a hunch that uh, that our listeners might uh, from time to time experience anxiety and stress and the worry. And that sort of stimulates the body's fight or flight system. And the breath and the meditation practice helps cool it down. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. There's something about the combination of awareness and breath when those are joined, or we could say attention and breath, that is really amazing to, like you're saying, to relieve anxiety, to calm our whole system down, you know, just to settle and ground. Yeah. Talk about love for a moment, because the the choice of words for the name of the book and the practice, you know, to me sounds like the application of love to the places that hurt. Exactly, exactly. And Tibetan Buddhism, there's two main aspects to the path in terms of Tibetan Buddhism and the way they talk about the spiritual path. And one is the cultivation of wisdom and one is the cultivation of love and compassion. So love in this sense is really... And what I'm talking about in the book are two things, learning to really open to and love oneself, to realize that all beings are are worthy of love, including ourselves, and to really, through uh, kindness and compassion, to open more and more to actually loving ourselves, and likewise with others. And Not, you know, it's very important, those people that are close to us in our life, that's very precious. And also within Buddhist practice, we have the uh, motivation and intention to open our hearts to all beings. You know, nothing to do with excusing behavior, but simply to open to all peoples in their equality, in their worthiness as human beings, and to engender compassion and loving kindness for for everybody's suffering and struggles. And through that, to allow our innate loving kindness and compassion to blossom. And therein lies the rub for many people because they will say, oh, yes, I'm a loving person. I'm a kind person. And then you mention or they mention somebody who they believe has betrayed them or perhaps has perpetrated a trespass against them or someone they love. And they sort of write that out of their heart. No, no, I can't do it for that person. And I think this is where the, the practice comes in with this because that's the challenge to do it for that person. Exactly. And I have a whole section in the book on that, like working with difficult people in terms of this kind of meditation. Now, first of all, this is why it's so important to cultivate self-love first. And in the ancient practice, that is the step before cultivating it for others. So when we cultivate compassion and, and, and love for ourselves, we open to our own wounding, our own pain, and work with healing that with, with our innate loving kindness. And that is a whole transformational process. And usually 
you know, we recommend doing that for some months, some time in your meditation uh, before trying to tackle difficult people or challenging people, people that are hard to feel love for. And once we've really worked more deeply with our own pain and trauma, then, and that, as you know, may require psychotherapy as well as meditation. And this is a process. I mean, that obviously can take years, but we can also work with the meditation practice alongside and work with the self-love. And then when we start working with others in our meditation of breathing in where they are, their suffering, having it transform through this powerful light of awakened awareness in the heart, and then go back to them as healing energy and love. We start with the people that are that we naturally feel close to, naturally feel love for. And over time, build up that muscle of the heart and include people that, you know, we really feel neutral about. And then eventually when we've really gone through all of that, we turn to the difficult people. And in a sense, we realize that their behavior may be really destructive or unwholesome, and we do not care for their behavior at all. But as a human being, they are trying to be happy in the best way they can. And they may be going about that in completely screwed up ways, but at the core, they're trying to be happy and they're very confused about how to go about that. And in that way, we can begin to feel compassion for them and then we can begin to have a sense of we hope that this ignorance clears, this confusion clears, and that they're able to pursue happiness in a way that's much more wholesome. And so in that way, we can move toward actually having loving kindness for those people that are really difficult. And it, as I mentioned, it has, it, it's in no way condoning their actions, and it's in no way saying that we have to have an association with these people that we have to hang out with them. Yeah. But in the heart, we're working on transforming our bitterness, our grudges, you know, into loving kindness. I have a, an example of this. Some months ago, I had a woman, a client at a center that I uh, work at, and she, I had done a meta meditation in, in one of the groups. And she had asked permission from one of the staff to contact me after she said she had something really pressing that she wanted to tell me. So um, I said it was okay to give her my number and she called and she said, I have to tell you the most amazing thing happened. Right in the meditation when you said to bring to mind somebody with who I have put out of my heart, those were the words mm. she used and that was the, the, the meditation. My mother called me, the phone vibrated and I did not know who it was, but it was in my pocket and I just let it sit. And after I went and saw that it was my mother that called me just at that moment, and I have not had any connection with her for three years. Wow. Wow. And she realized her power at that moment, right? The power of this process. Yes, yes, yes. And that's that's amazing. And that is part of this love on every breath practice that when we work through our, our you know, issues inside of ourselves and come to more of a loving place and also let go of some of the stuff we're holding on other people. It opens up the space for them to show up differently Yeah, in, in our lives. Yes. And, and amazing things can happen. Amazing things can happen. And that's not to say that the relationship gets repaired with these people, you know, it's not necessarily, although the door maybe is open. Yes. That. But yeah. it, it serves our healing and expansion of our own consciousness and awareness as well. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I wanted to ask you to define love because people define it in so many different ways, but the intention of love on every breath means what? That's a huge question, isn't it? Um, <laughs> yes. In the book, I talk about different kinds of love, you know, and we're all familiar with romantic love. We're familiar with the love like a parent has for a child or a platonic for a friend or maybe a sibling. So 
all of these kinds of love are, you know, very important for us as human beings. And, and at the core of that is what in Buddhism is seen as part of our essential true nature, which, is, and research is starting to prove this now that we have this innate kindness and care for others. And so that's what you know, research is starting to point out that there is this innate loving kindness, that innately we do care about others. And in this sense of, of the spiritual, we're cultivating what we could call like a universal love that includes ourselves and all beings. As you are speaking, the word reverence comes to mind. And I'm thinking, okay, it replaced the word reverence for love, you know, reverence um, mm-hmm. on every breath. Mm-hmm. It's a little different. That's a good distinction, actually, because I definitely, I mean, reverence is a beautiful quality. The love is a little bit more active in a sense, like love on every breath is giving out the love. So reverence in a way is like an internal experience. And in the sense of this love on every breath, there's the opening into and then the sending out. So it's a very active process of engaging with others, engaging with our felt experience from a place of love and meeting our experience with love, meeting others with love. As an action, as a, as yes. a, as a verb. Yeah, yeah. right. Yeah. Well, you have been an absolute joy and delight. The book we're speaking of today is Love on Every Breath. The author is my guest, Lama Paulden Droma. To learn more about Lama Paulden's work, please visit www.lamapaulden.org. On Twitter, you can find her at Lama Paulden, and on Facebook, Lama Paulden Droma. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you, Lisa. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for joining us on Harvesting Happiness today. This is Lisa Cybers-Kamen on behalf of my guests, Dr. Dilip Cheste and Lama Paul Dendroma, wishing you kind thoughts, kinder words, and the kindest of actions. Until next time, remember, happiness is an inside job. Happiness is your inside job. Please go out and rock your day and remember to be kind to one another. Keep harvesting your own happiness anytime and anywhere from the comfort of wherever you are. Subscribe, listen, and share hundreds of downloadable episodes via our free app or from our libraries at toginet.com, iTunes, Google Play, and other fine podcast platforms. To learn more about Lisa's global consulting services, please visit harvestinghappiness.com. Spread more joy by liking us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and following Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen. Harvesting Happiness is produced in collaboration with TogiNet Radio, KBUURadioMalibu.net, and is available on PRX, the public radio exchange.